Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. I left off this week's follow-up episode with the promise to do a deep dive into the wallet that was found in Eva's apartment after Catalina's murder. Several listeners had noticed some pretty big discrepancies regarding exactly where it was found. So I set out today intending to get to the bottom of it. And I did. And based on the information we have available, there's nothing really groundbreaking or game-changing going on with the wallet. So I thought back to where things stand with the case and where we still have conflicts. And the first thing that I thought of was a discussion that I had with a listener in Cleveland last week. She, along with many other listeners, have told me that their biggest hurdle in this case is Jennifer's confession. A lot of people just can't get past it. They say it's just too detailed, and the language choices, etc. all just ring true to them. So because of that, after I break down the wallet saga... I'm going to share with you today an interview that I conducted on True Crime Binge with juvenile false confession expert, Laura Nyrider. Now, I know that a lot of you have already heard the interview, so you may want to tune out after the wallet segment. But based on what I see in the download numbers, there are tens of thousands of you who have not heard it. And even if you have, I still think it's a good refresher. So here we go. This is Season 10, Episode 26, Laura Nyrider on False Confessions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. When listeners suggested to me that I should delve into the wallet situation, they had two main concerns. Number one, there seemed to be some inconsistencies with where the wallet was found within Eva's apartment. And number two, some question whether or not the wallet was actually found in Eva's apartment. 
many have wondered if maybe it was actually found in Catalina's unit. As far as number two is concerned, there's just no evidence to indicate that the wallet came from anywhere besides Eva's apartment. All of the police reports and testimonies indicate that that's where it was found. To suggest otherwise would just be pure speculation. However, I will acknowledge that there are enough gaps in the stories that it does make you wonder. That's all we can really do is wonder. The fact is that Urbano Medrano says that he found the wallet in Unit 58, and Keith Truesdale also says he found it in Unit 58, which he specifically identifies as Eva's apartment at trial. So there's no question about which apartment he was talking about. In order for it to have been found anywhere else, Keith would have to be lying, and we have no reason to believe that he would lie at all, much less under oath. As far as where the fallout was found in the apartment, that confusion comes from Officer Cobb's report on the incident. He writes in his report that the wallet was found behind a couch in Eva's apartment. And of course, at trial, the story is that the wallet was found behind the refrigerator tucked into the coils. The discrepancy seemed to have legs until I broke down the timeline of events. This is how things happened. Eva moved out of her apartment on November 3rd after putting notice in on October 31st. Then the unit sat empty for nearly seven months, and we have no explanation as to why that is. On May 26, Urbano Medrano pulls the refrigerator out so that he can paint the wall behind it, and that's when he finds the wallet. He looks through it and leaves it on the counter when he locks up and leaves. A day or two later, Keith Truesdale goes into the apartment to check on the paint job and to make sure that the unit is ready for its new tenant, who was scheduled to move in on June 1st. When he goes inside, he sees the wallet on the counter. He looks in it and sees that the ID belongs to Catalina. He then takes the wallet back to the maintenance building and calls Officer Kendall Cobb, who moonlights doing security at Green Arbor. Cobb meets him in the office, takes possession of the wallet, and calls into the homicide division to tell them what he found. He speaks with a Sergeant Topel. The sergeant accepts a hold on the wallet and directs Cobb to tag it into the HPD property room. And then, of course, we know the story. Cobb forgets about the wallet and drives around with it in his car in a grocery bag for over three months. Then on August 28th, Detective Allen is starting to tie up loose ends and get things ready for trial. This is actually his first entry, his first progress report in the case file since all the way back in December. So then as he's going through things, he sees that the wallet is in the property room, and he goes there to get it to send it for some fingerprint testing, and it's not there. He then calls Officer Cobb, who does some searching, and then he finds it in his car. At that point, Cobb takes it to the property room and properly tags it in as evidence. Two weeks later, Detective Allen starts really looking into the wallet. It's not until two weeks after that, on September 14th, that Detective Allen really starts to look into the wallet. He calls the complex to talk to Truesdale, and Keith had moved to working at a different complex, so he calls over there and he talks to Keith. Between Keith and the leasing agents, Allen is able to learn the name of the painting company that Urbano works for, and ultimately, he gets in touch with Mr. Medrano. When he gets Urbano on the phone, he has his daughter Isabel translate. Mr. Medrano doesn't speak English. And this is when we learn where the wallet was found. Urbano says that he found the wallet in the coils on the back of the fridge. So, I told you all that to tell you this. Cobb was just guessing when he said that the wallet was found behind the couch. The truth is that not only did Officer Cobb never speak with Mr. Madrano, but neither did Keith. Keith just found the wallet on the counter and gave it to Cobb. It wasn't until September when Allen finally tracked him down that anyone actually asked Urbano where he found the wallet. And therefore, the fact that Cobb wrote in his report that it was found behind the couch, 
a report that he wrote several months later, really, it's not relevant at all. Neither he or Keith ever had any contact with Medrano, so they had no way of knowing where the wallet was found. So that pretty much settles that. Like I said, the ridiculous lack of a chain of custody and the amount of time that passed between events certainly leaves me feeling uneasy about the wallet. But I don't see anything here that would cause me to dispute where it was found. But before I move on, the only other thing I'd like to touch on regarding the wallet is to settle something that I brought up in the follow-up a couple days ago. I suggested that maybe someone could reach around to the fridge from the living room side of the counter, meaning that someone could have come in the front door and just leaned over and tucked the wallet into the fridge. But after looking at the crime scene video and sketches of the apartment layout, I don't think that would be possible. I think someone had to have walked into the kitchen in order to stash the wallet. And with that being said, that's all I have for you regarding the wallet. I intended on making this a whole full episode about it, but there's just nothing there. It definitely looked on the surface like there might be something fishy going on, other than it riding around in Cop's car for three months, which is definitely fishy. But it looks like it was found in Eva's apartment, and it was found behind the fridge, just like was originally reported. So, as promised, I'm now going to play for you my interview with Laura Nyrider. She understands juvenile false confessions better than anyone in the justice system. If you're one of those people that just can't get past Jennifer's confession, please give this a listen with an open mind. Things are not always as they seem. Here's Laura. So, so how long have you been doing uh, wrongful conviction false confessions? I have been doing that podcast um, for just over a year. We are two seasons in to wrongful conviction mm-hmm. false confessions. So it's been a total whirlwind, actually. You know, it was, of course, there was Making a Murderer, which was my introduction, my real introduction right. into how much people care about these stories and the, the power of wrongful conviction stories to bring about real change. You know, I'd been in films and Dateline episodes and things like that before then, but Making a Murderer, you know, was there's was nothing like it before and there's been nothing like it since. Um, serial podcast coming very close as well. Um, so that was my big introduction into this real power of media to move change, which is why we agreed to do the podcast on false confessions. And we've been so sort of unbelievably thrilled by its its you know popularity, its success. People want to hear these stories, which is just our honor to be able to tell them. Can you one thing I want to I want to make sure that our listeners can uh, find your podcast. We were emailing a little bit before we before we got on the air because I had I, I've listened to episodes like when people put up that Laura's got this episode out about these different cases. Uh, but when I went like to the Apple podcast feed, it was a little confusing finding. Uh, so can you explain where people find your podcast to begin with? Yes. Thank you for asking that. It is a little bit hard to find, um, which is frustrating, but but people do find it, which is great. Wrongful Conviction False Confessions shares a feed with other shows about wrongful conviction that all sort of fly under the wrongful conviction banner. So if people go onto Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as we say, go look up Wrongful Conviction and you will find a feed that is home to several different shows. You'll find our show, Wrongful Conviction False Confessions. You will find uh, Wrongful Conviction Junk Science, hosted by my friend Josh Dubin, which is about forensic science and its failures in these cases. And you'll find Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom, which is a series of interviews with people who've been exonerated. Right. So that so that was the the big one. So if you're looking for wrongful conviction, false confessions, it's not a standalone own it's own your own feed. So just look up the wrongful conviction feed and you can find your show, Josh's show, and Jason's 
show all in that feed. That's right. I think we're going to be spinning off our own feed here shortly. But in the meantime, yeah, just go dig through uh, the Wrongful Conviction feed and you'll find us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's a, such a great feed because all three of those shows are so fast. I just had Jason on a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to try to try to hook up with Josh sometime soon, for the junk science one. But being the, you know, doing my other show is Truth and Justice, working all on wrongful convictions. I'm just fascinated with everything that you guys are doing. Yeah. It's kind of a fun little medley of a feed. So, yeah. 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 And, and your, what you do in particular is one of the most fascinating things to me is I'm really into, I, I got connected with Jim Clemente like six years ago, working on um, profiling and statement analysis that he was, he kind of started off consulting with me and then he kind of started mentoring me. And it is really like, that's where a lot of my focus goes is into doing statement analysis and, and analyzing confessions and false confessions in particular. And so I'm really fascinated with the work that you do on that. So, so how did, so, you know, my first introduction to you was on making a murderer with Kathleen Zellner. Do you, have you always worked with Kathleen? Was that just for that, that particular case or how, how did you get into this media space? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, to be clear, you know, with, with the making a murderer case, right, I represent Brendan Dassey, along with my colleague, Steve Drizzen, who also co-hosts the False Confession podcast with me. Uh, we've represented Brendan for 13 years or so now, ever since he was convicted, uh, coming within about 12 hours of getting him out a few years ago before we were blocked by the federal court system. Uh, but we represent Brendan and serendipitously Kathleen Zellner, who is a private attorney here in the Chicago area, who also does wrongful conviction work. Uh, she decided to get involved in Stephen Avery's case after season one of Making a Murder. So the two of us have been working on sort of parallel tracks because, of course, the cases are, are quite different in terms of the evidence against them, right? Uh, you know, Stephen Avery's job is, his task is to fight um, this physical evidence that the state says that they have against him. Brendan's task has always been, because there is zero physical evidence tying Brendan to this case, Brendan's task has always been to fight his own words, right? The confession that was coerced out of him by two seasoned adult interrogators who were using very coercive interrogation techniques that we see over and over and over again in false confession cases. So for Brendan, you know, it's always been, it's, it's a psychological game, right? They played a psychological game against Brendan Dassey and, and won, right? He was 16 with intellectual disabilities, um, didn't stand much of a chance in that room. So um, yes, so making a murderer is, is certainly the, it, you know, the biggest, I guess, foray into the media that, that I've done. We've been involved in a lot of high-profile high cases over the years at the Center on Wrongful Convictions, which is here in Chicago. We're part of Northwestern University. So we're law professors. We teach students. They work on our cases with us. We're lawyers. We go out there and represent people who've been wrongly convicted. Our center has exonerated about 45 innocent people over its history. And, um, you know, some of the cases that come to us, most of them are people who are not so fortunate as to have Netflix pick up their story, but who are no less deserving you know, than Brendan or other high-profile people. But we have been involved in the West Memphis Three case. If some of your listeners remember that case out of Arkansas, a terrible, tragic mm -hmm. um, miscarriage of justice in which three teenagers, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, were wrongly convicted. And there were documentary films made about that. And I, yeah, I was a very young lawyer when we joined Damien Eccles' legal team, Steve and I. And in that case, right, there's the Paradise Lost series of films that had been made in the 90s about West Memphis Three, right? Joe Berlinger right. and Bruce Sinofsky made those films for HBO and sort of lit this global movement on fire with those documentary films that hinted at 
the, the three defendants' um, innocence. And we got involved in representing Damien right when Peter Jackson, the Hollywood filmmaker from Lord of the Rings, right, right got involved in making a second documentary about their case, West of Memphis, um, as, as a way to boost the fact that new DNA evidence had just been uncovered in their case that excluded them and pointed elsewhere. And so that case um, was a sort of a crash course for me in the power of telling these stories and what can be accomplished. I've no doubt in my mind that it was part of why they got released, why the West Memphis Three got released, was the power of these films and the engagement with people who really care about this, these issues, or maybe they don't know they care about these issues until they see it on TV or they watch the film. So to, to go through that experience, which of course was pre-social media, right? I mean, right. that was hot before social media existed. And then to barely go- Barely internet existed. Barely. Well, yeah, they were yeah. exactly, they were released in, in 2011, almost exactly 10 years ago, actually, this August. And then to go through, uh, you know, Making a Murderer with, with Brendan, seasons one, we were in the tail end of season one, and then season two, of course, and to watch that light the world on fire. I mean, that's, right. I can't tell you, for someone who, you know, for the first, I don't know, eight years of my career <laughs> as a wrongful conviction attorney, I would tell anyone who cared to listen, who I could sort of pin down for five minutes, hey, you know what? Wrongful convictions actually happen, right? Innocent people right. actually are convicted. People actually confess to crimes they didn't commit. I know that sounds crazy, but it happens so much more often than you think. And I'd just be trying to sell this idea. And then these, these films came out, most prominently, the series Making a Murderer. And suddenly the world got it because they saw it. Yeah. You know, and, and it started, it, it's like that things started rolling with, I think, the Paradise Lost and West of Memphis with seeing Jesse Miss Kelly's. Uh, you know, people started to, I think by the time West of Memphis came around, people were starting to get the idea that maybe he just falsely confessed. And then, you know, yeah, Serial yes. came out and that like got the podcast, you know, lit Kicked up the off podcast the podcast rule. industry. It's interesting to me how so many of these cases sort of built industries, right? Serial kicked off the podcast industry in a big way, right? The Adnan right. Syed case, Making a Murderer kicked off the Netflix documentary series, The Global sure. Side in a big way. I mean, these stories are, are like galvanizing industries. Yeah, and the, and the biggest thing is 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 more so than just like I mean certainly the attention to the case the cases that were covered was great but as you said like it just I think it opened up people's eyes to the fact that these things really happen that people are wrongfully convicted and 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 it, an even harder leap to get people to take is to understand that people do confess to things that they didn't do absolutely right it's so counterintuitive you know all of us think of course I would never confess to a crime. I didn't commit, right? Isn't that what we all think? Of course, that's what we all think. But what I've learned in you know now 14 years of doing this work, representing dozens of people who confessed to crimes they didn't commit and studying hundreds more and talking right. about it every chance I can get is um, every single one of us has a breaking point. Yeah. And that's I, I interviewed um, Jim Trainum, who I'm sure you're familiar with, yeah. a couple of years ago. And he's, he said the same thing. He's like, people say I would never. It's funny because my, my wife, doesn't listen to any of my podcasts, but she loves true crime like TV and every, and, and, but she knows like the case I'm working right now is very similar to the one to Brendan Dassey and also to the case we're going to talk about later today. It's a 15 year old girl who was interrogated by police for seven hours without a parent, without a lawyer and was lied to and misled and ended up in, in her case, they didn't record anything. They typed out a confession for her and then had her sign it. And then it sent her away for prison for life. And the physical evidence shows that, that, in my opinion, she's completely innocent. 
but I do this. I talk about it with my wife, but she'll still, if we're watching a documentary, we just saw something you were on uh, a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember what, what other Netflix show have you been on or other documentaries have you been on? Um, I, think, I can't believe I'm drawing a, a few of them. <laughs> I was just on, maybe you saw the 20, the ABC 2020 on the Kevin Fox case. I was just on that. I just, or I was on CNN about death penalty and, and wrongful convictions. I don't know. I'd pop up from place to place. It could have been. It was one of the cases I was researching and I'm like, I'm like, there's, that's it's actually the night that I sent you the, the tweet to set up this interview, whatever documentary I was watching to research a case. You popped up and I'm like, oh, that's Laura Nyrider. She's the one from making a murder. That I, and then I think I heard you say on there that, or they said, they said that you had the podcast too. I'm like, oh, I need to talk to her. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. How did you get into, because that, that is really kind of your specialty, right? Is, is false confessions. Yes. It's my specialty. You know, I, I, I do a lot of work in the sort of general wrongful conviction space, but from day one, false confessions, absolutely. <laughs> you know, disturbed me, fascinated me, sort of obsessed me. Because again, it's not a question of, oops, we did the testing wrong, or, you know, we, we don't understand the science. It is all psychology. It is all the psychological game of interrogation. How do you turn a person from, of course, I wouldn't falsely confess, that doesn't make any sense, into someone who says they committed a murder that they didn't commit, right? What is, what is the psychological mind game of interrogation that, that, is so risky that it can produce, you know, so many false confessions. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's so interesting, and I, you, you probably know this, but so, like, I was, um, prior to doing this, I was an arson investigator, and I was actually taught the read technique. I still have my textbook out in my office out there, and it says on like page two of the read technique textbook that the interrogation is psychological warfare. Yeah. So everybody should go out and buy the read technique <laughs> textbook, right? right? It's called Criminal yeah. Interrogations and Confessions. And I think they're on their fourth edition now. Is that right? I'm not sure. But it's a fascinating read, right? Because it, it explains exactly these interrogation techniques, which are really old. So here's a fun fact about the read technique of interrogation, which is very similar to the technique that was used on Brendan Dassey that people saw in Making a Murderer, and which you know many people have, have criticized as associated with false confessions. So it was actually developed, the read technique and the underlying principles, uh, the sort of psychological tricks, were invented in the 1940s in Chicago at Northwestern University, which is where I now teach and work, right? Um, by a, a professor named Fred Inbow. So back before a psychological interrogation was developed, people were interrogated using physical abuse, right? That's where we get the term the third degree, right? They were like 
you know, hung outside windows until they confessed or beaten up until they confessed. That was just standard practice. And then in the 1940s, Fred and Bao and the Reed technique come along. And, you know, at the time it's progressive, it's enlightened. Hey, let's stop beating people. Let's just use these psychological tricks instead to get confessions. And at the time it was great news. But we're still using <laughs> these techniques from the 1940s, even though, even though now, of course, we have DNA evidence. And we're proving these confessions false at a rate much higher than anyone ever expected and under circumstances that are much different than anybody ever expected. It doesn't take physical abuse to coerce a false confession. It takes lies. It takes manipulation. It takes deceit, psychological warfare. That's what it takes. Right. And And what's amazing is when this technique was first developed, that you can see, okay, here's something. And look, we're getting confessions. It's working. And it may seem like a great asset to law enforcement. But then now, 75, 80 years later, we have a great data set to look at where we can literally look at statistics and show I've heard anywhere from 25 to 29% of DNA proven wrongful convictions involved a false confession. So, so, like, so now we know, like, that's a quarter of the time, to- a quarter of the time people are, are wrongfully convicted. It's because of this technique. They said they did something they didn't do. So when are we going to change it? That's it's such a good question. And here's something else, by the way, before we get into, into the change question, which is such an important question. You know, one of the interesting things about the read technique and other, other commonly, formed, commonly used forms of interrogation techniques, if you read these books, the instruction is you don't interrogate unless you believe the person to be guilty already, right? right. The purpose of interrogation is very clearly not to find the truth. You're not trying to learn information or test a theory, right? During interrogation, police are trained to to interrogate only after they believe you're guilty. But of course, why are they interrogating you if they believe they're guilty? It's because they don't have enough evidence yet, right? Right? They need the confession, so it's this weird self-perpetuating. There's a problem. There's a problem exactly. So this is this is one of the fascinating things about interrogation. You're sort of supposed to go in with this based on this preconceived hunch that this person is guilty, and not leave the room until you get confirmation of that by hook or by crook, you know, using sometimes really, really disturbing tactics like we saw with Brendan and with Jesse Miss Kelly and with mm-hmm. so many others of these cases, right? Lies about the evidence is a huge tactic in interrogations that lead to false confessions. So things like, I found your fingerprints on the gun, right? No one's going to believe you're innocent, right. right? Even though that's not true, police are allowed to lie during interrogations about the evidence against a suspect. It's part of this process of, of psychological interrogation, part of the process of breaking down a suspect into the state of hopelessness. You are caught, you are screwed, right? There's a mountain of evidence against you. No one is going to believe your innocence. And if you're in that room, even if you are innocent, you've got this cop or maybe three cops in your face saying, hey man, my crime lab, my crime lab, it's your prints on that gun. You can tell me all day you never touched it, but no one's going to believe you. You're thinking to yourself, oh my God, like, this is horrible. There's been some awful mistake. I don't know what's going on, but these guys are in my face. They really seem to believe I did this, right? The crime lab somehow is, is, is identifying my fingerprints. He's right. No one's going to believe I'm innocent, right? Yeah. And it's like this whole setup, you know, there's the, the re-technique teaches, in, like you said, first it's an interview. Right. And then the interrogation starts when you think that you have even when you have the right person, but even that's abused. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that, that's an excuse to keep, say, a minor without notifying their parents because, oh, they're not a suspect yet. We're just interviewing. You know, they're, they're not a suspect yet. 
But then once they get into that interrogation, they do exactly that. They'll lie. And we saw the same thing. Again, the case I'm working now, Jennifer Jeffley out of Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. Yes. They, the 15-year-old. They lied to her. They told her. They, they just kept pushing like, well, we have your fingerprints here. So then you watch her story change. She's like, oh, well, I, I touched the drawer because of this. Right. And, then, and that's what I was getting at earlier. My wife was like, I just, I would never do that. And, and as Jim Trainum said, if you hold the right gun to your head, they just have to figure out which gun it is to hold to your head. You will mm-hmm. crack. Right. And that's what happens is they lie. And then once they get you in so deep and it's amazing, like it's literally what I'm describing sounds so awful. It's in a goddamn textbook yeah. sitting right yeah. there, like back you into a corner until you're in so deep. Now you've said you touched this. You said you touched this. You did this because I lied to you and told you your DNA was there and you refused to accept the fact that I it wasn't. And then when you feel like you have nowhere to go, then they offer you a way out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They say things like. Well, okay, listen, sometimes accidents happen. Maybe it was, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe you didn't mean to kill it. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe she just fell or maybe, did she, maybe she came after you first and you were defending yourself. Exactly. This is and what they, they call they the theme, keep... right? The theme. You, they provide some sort of, you know, excuse or explanation, something that would make you feel a little bit better about saying you did it, right? Some sort of face-saving right. justification, right? Even what's amazing is there's actually a separate book. You should get this book too. Also by the same um, outfit that, that developed and sells the read technique. It's a, just a book of themes, of, of these sort of face-saving excuses that they use to get confessions. And it's, it's categorized by crime. So you can literally look up everything from, you know, arson <laughs> to like sexual abuse. <laughs> and like, here's a bunch of reasons why you might have done it that aren't that bad sounding. It's crazy. Like, like arson, for example, it's like, oh, well, you know, you just wanted... Uh, you know, you just wanted attention and you were going to put it out before it got out of hand, but then you were interrupted. So it's really that person's fault. I mean, just like these crazy <laughs> themes, but this is how they're, they're taught to do it. Yeah. They've already got you in a position where you're so desperate that you're like, well, that doesn't sound too bad. And then they make promises, right? I mean, you see so many of these interrogations. If you just accept one of these themes, if you just tell us it was an accident or, you know, you lost your temper or you meant to put out the fire or whatever the case may be, if you just tell us that. People will understand. They're going to want to help you, mm-hmm. right? They're going to want to look out for you. The judge will look at you differently. The prosecutor will look at you differently. Maybe it's a slap on the wrist. Maybe you'll get to go home tonight. I don't know, right? But if you don't cooperate, if you don't at least give me that, then they're going to throw the book at you, right? It'll be, I mean, they're going to come down hard like an avalanche, right? So which one is it going to be? Right. And then they, and then they get you to accept the theme, which you think sounds like is, leading, is, is less incriminating, maybe going to be less punishment. But you don't realize that they're just gaining ground on you. They're just pull, they're pulling a little bit. Yeah. It's like, first, I'm going to get you to, by lying to you about the evidence, I'm going to get you to admit you were there when you really weren't there. And now that I've got you inside, now you're trapped inside. And now I'm going to get you to admit that, well, you killed them, but it was an accident. And now you've killed them. And at that point, we're, you have nowhere left to go. Yeah. There's, there's no good way to have killed someone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you don't know that. They convince you. But they tell you differently. It's all based on deceit and manipulation, right? Right. What's interesting is these techniques back in the day when they were invented were based on door to door high pressure sales techniques, right? Really? Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. The same techniques that are like, hey, I'm selling you, I don't know, a set of knives (laughs) or whatever. And, you know, this is this this deal is going to go away. It's going to expire right now. This is your last chance. You know, mm-hmm. right now you've got to do this deal. Otherwise, your life is going to be terrible in X way because you didn't buy the set of knives. But it's going to be so much better. Here's all the different great things these knives can do for you. But you have to buy them now. 
You see that same right. technique in interrogations, right? All the time, officers are trained to come in and say, look, if you just accept one of these themes, if you just say it was an accident, I can go tell my supervisor that, but he's, he's, he's you know, leaving in, in an hour, right? This is it, man. I'm not coming back in this room. This is your chance. Now, now, now. It's just like being sold a bill of goods, except the bill of goods that, goods that you're being sold is your life, all right, behind bars. Sure. Yeah. And that was, you know, in the lies, like I keep going back to Jennifer's case because the one I'm engrossed in right now. While she was sitting there having her confession typed up, her mother calls. She talks to her mom on the phone and the, and the, and the detective tells both Jennifer and her mom, Ugh. as soon as we're done with this statement, you can go home. Yeah. And her mom saying, I want to come down there. No, 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 no need. We're about to bring her home as he's typing a confession. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, and the, and the theme they used with her was, well, I was just a lookout during a robbery, mm-hmm. and they killed her, and, yep. and, 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 I, and she names two imaginary people that killed the woman, killed Catalina Palomino, and thinks that, okay, I'm going home now, I told them who did it, and then she gets locked up literally for the rest of her life because of the aiding and abetting laws. Now she has confessed to murder without even realizing she confessed to murder because they told her she could go home. Yeah, it's it's just such a common set of facts. It's heartbreaking. And that's a good example of something you see, especially with kids when they're being interrogated, is the way that police officers will actually try to use a parent against their own child, which, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a mom. That's that's reprehensible. It doesn't take a lawyer again to explain why that's so wrong. You see police using the same techniques on the parent as on the child. And the parent comes to believe that the child needs to confess because the parent's being told that, that you know, Jennifer or whoever will get to go home. Um, if they just cooperate. And so those are some of the hardest cases to see. That's why, by the way, that's why when we push for reform around the country, because it's a big part of what we do at the Center on Wrongful Convictions, learn from these cases, try to pass laws, work to change um, policies so that this happens less often, at least. We're very proud that after making a murderer, um, two states passed laws, the first two states in the country passed laws requiring lawyers for kids inside the interrogation room, right? California, kids 18 and under, get a lawyer, right? Have to have a lawyer. Parent too, that's great. That's great. But you need a lawyer as well. Someone to help navigate the system, someone who won't, uh, who will be able to push back against these tactics in a way that, you know, just a, a lay person might not be able to. In Illinois, it's, it's uh, kids under age 15 for certain offenses. So these are very beginning laws, but people are starting to wake up to this problem. Another amazing development that just happened about 10 days ago is Illinois became the first state in U.S. history to pass a law that bans police from lying in the interrogation room to kids. You know, it's, it was, it's absolutely phenomenal, passed with bipartisan support. There's only a single vote <laughs> against it in both chambers of the Illinois legislature. It's incredible stuff. Well, it's amazing. That's my, the next thing on my list was, was to talk about was because yeah. it didn't just happen. You were a big part of how that happened. Can you, can you explain that process? Because it's actually, we were going to do this interview a week ago, but you were grinding the midnight oils, getting this thing pushed through. Yeah, that was, that was all of our Memorial Day weekend, because of course, that's when the legislature chooses to meet, right? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah. So, so myself and a number of colleagues around the country were Rebecca Brown from the Innocence Project, Lauren Caseberg from the Illinois Innocence Project. Michelle Ambekiani Wiley from the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, all these incredible humans, all these incredible humans were working on that, um, on that bill. But yeah, we consulted on that bill with uh, the incredible lawmakers who sponsored it, uh, helped consult around the language, you know, suggested language based on our experience 
and expertise on false confession cases. And yeah, we did what we could do to make sure that the lawmakers, when they were considering this bill, heard from people who themselves had falsely confessed, who, the, himself, who themselves had been lied to and spent, you know, years and years and years in prison based on this, based on this, uh, you know, flawed technique. And one of the things that I'm proudest of, actually, is, you know, I said this bill was bipartisan. The House Minority Leader, um, a Republican named Jim Durkin, came on board as a co-sponsor of this bill precisely because, and he, he said this in the press, because he had seen Making a Murderer. And uh-huh. he had watched oh, the video, uh, the interrogation video of Brendan, and like the rest of the world, <laughs> immediately saw how wrong it was and saw this bill as a way to prevent future Brendan Dassey's. That's, that's amazing. And, it, and, and that, uh, I think, is a good transition into the case we're talking about, because you have now legislation passed in Illinois that makes it so police cannot lie to minors. Yes. And similar bills pending in New York and Oregon. So stay tuned. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And the, the case we're going to talk about today is the, the wrongful conviction of Robert Davis, who was wrongfully convicted based on a false confession that occurred because law enforcement lied to him. So can you kind of break down Robert's case? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Robert Davis's case is one of the very first false confession cases I worked on, along with Brendan Dassey in the West Memphis Three. And it's just one of the clearest most stomach-churning <laughs> examples of interrogation techniques that are run amok on a, a clearly innocent person, right? So Robert, this is 2003. Robert is 18 years old. He's a high school senior in Crozet, Virginia, which is this small town uh, near Charlottesville uh, in Virginia. High school senior, and it's February 2003, so a couple months before he's due to graduate. He lives with his mom on a, on a street called Kling Lane. And one night, right, during the middle of a snowstorm, the house, a couple doors down, goes up in flames. Okay, big fire. Fire department shows up, they put out the fire, they go upstairs, and on the second floor of the house, they find the body of the homeowner, a woman named Nola Charles, in a bed, face up. And when they turn her over, in her back, they find a knife. So immediately it becomes clear that this fire had been set to cover up her murder. Then they go to the room next door and find that her young uh, preschool-age son had died of, of smoke inhalation, right? So it's a double, double murder case. Right. Police immediately f- fan out, and pretty soon they settle on some, some decent suspects. There are other kids who live on that same block from a different family, Rocky and Jessica Fugit, who both have a history, um, a history of really turbulent mental health. It's very sad stuff, right? A lot of acting out, a lot of getting into trouble with the law, a lot of sort of disturbing behaviors as due to unstable mental health on the part of both of them. Jessica was 15, Rocky was 19. But these were, so they pick up Rocky and Jessica. Jessica had been friends with Nola's, with the victim's older teenage daughter, and had a grudge against her friend's mom, against Nola, because Nola wouldn't let Jessica and, 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 and her friends, you know, dress the way they dressed or go where they wanted to go, you know, typical sort of teenage stuff. So the police pick up Rocky and Jessica, question them, and it seems to be going well, right? Both Rocky and Jessica confess to participating in this attack on, on Nola Charles and her home and lighting it on fire. And Jessica even leads the police to the snow-covered field where they find um, a, a, an iron bar that was used to bludgeon Nola before she was stabbed. They test the iron bar. It's got Nola's DNA. It's like perfect evidence. The confessions are true. Rocky and Jessica are guilty. Should be case closed. Shouldn't be a story, right? 
but the police aren't satisfied. So they keep saying to Rocky and Jessica, there must have been other people involved. Who else was there? We think it wasn't just you two. And Rocky and Jessica both rattle off the names of a bunch of kids from their high school that they didn't get along with, right? And the police go down this list of names one by one. Every one of these kids has got a great alibi, except the last name, which is Robert Davis, right? Robert was 18, lives at home with his mom. That night, his mom was out. He was at home asleep by himself. Not a great alibi, right? So the police bring in Robert Davis for questioning, believing him to be Rocky and Jessica's accomplice. And this whole thing, the whole interrogation is caught on tape. He's brought in completely unawares Um, just after midnight uh, on February 22nd, 2003, into the the police station, thrown into an interrogation room. You know, Robert's a big guy. He's a tall guy, but he's, he's thrown into the corner. And these police officers come in and he's questioned for about the next six hours from midnight until about six in the morning, approximately. And, um, you know, the interrogation that follows is one of the most coercive I've ever seen, right? Robert starts out just like any of us, right? He, he, he's not mentally limited, um, like Jesse Miskelly of Brendan. He starts out just like what any of us would do, right? What are you talking about, man? I would never do this. I couldn't, I couldn't hurt a fly. This is insane. How can I prove this to you, right? Can I take a polygraph? What can I do? What can I do, right? But the officers shut him down. And they shut him down with lies. It's exactly what we talked about, Bob, these techniques. They say right. to him, you know, Robert, you know, people shed skin cells wherever they go. And we found your skin cells, your DNA at the scene, which is a complete lie. This house went up in smoke. There was no physical evidence recovered from that house at all. Right. But that's what they say to him. And you can see on this video, this, this big 18-year-old guy is shook. You know, he is scared. Right. right. You can see this like panic radiating, radiating off. I'm like, what are they talking about? But Jesus, they really think I did this, you know? And this goes on and on. And they say to him, Robert, and this is all on tape, right? They say to him, Robert, look, here's the thing. If you don't confess, you're going to get the ultimate punishment. And this is Virginia, right? So what does that mean? Right. Well, it's it the death penalty. Death penalty. Exactly. He's 18. He's eligible. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I wanted to ask you about that because maybe I have a misconception about that, but I was under the impression that there were Supreme Court rulings that made it so you couldn't threaten someone with the death penalty. Am I just, just wrong about that or how did they get around that? Wrong about that. No such ruling. So, so they can absolutely just threaten you with the death penalty if you don't confess yeah what exactly well we can talk about the law the law is extremely unclear when it comes to what police officers are allowed to do and not allowed to do so some judges if you if you see that will throw out the confession other judges won't right so it depends on what's going on in your jurisdiction what your local judges opinions are um which is part of the problem there's there's like no guidelines in this space no real guidelines in the law to guard against false confessions. Well, and, and the laws seem to have very little teeth. We went, we went through that in Jennifer's case where there is a law in Texas that says that once a juvenile is in custody and a suspect, 
then the police have to notify their parents. Yes. And in her case, they never did. In fact, her mom called at that time and they told her, oh, no, no, she's going to be home soon. So don't worry about it. Didn't tell her that she was in custody. Didn't tell her that she was confessing to a crime, which 100% broke the law. But the law has no teeth because there's like there's like another paragraph of the law that says, but this cannot be used to exclude a confession from evidence. So, like, who cares? <laughs> so, what are we doing here, right? Exactly. It's complete. That's, that's so classic. That is so classic, right? And what's interesting, by the way, about that is only about 13 states in the country have any requirement whatsoever that police even attempt to call someone's parent before questioning a kid. Only 13 states. And that's so, it was shocking to me because when, when I first took Jennifer's case, my first thought was, this is illegal. You can't, you can't interrogate a 15-year-old without their parents. And then I found out, nope, that's not the case. They, they absolutely can, and they do it all the time. It's amazing to me. It, it's, it's awful that, that, that the system exists in such a way that I've had to teach my 10-year-old son that if any police ever ask you about anything, you only tell them, I want a lawyer and I want my dad. And you don't say another word. That is it. Even if they tell you, we just need you to help. Do not talk to them. And it's pretty sad that I have to teach my 10-year-old that. It's a totally sad state of affairs. I feel the same way. You know, we have a letter on file at our kid's school saying if the police show up and want to talk to our children, we do not consent to it. We represent, you know, I've, I'm fortunate enough to be able to say I represent my children, right? They're lawyered up. Yeah. Uh, it's on file, right? So, you know, hopefully someone will look in that file. Um, but of course, we teach our kids to say the same thing. And it is a sad state of affairs. Mm-hmm. But I didn't mean to de- derail you. So, so getting back to Robert's case, they, they get him in there and they start lying to him. Yeah, they get in there, right? They, they tell him they've got his, his DNA at the scene and that he's staring at the death penalty, the ultimate punishment. Unless he confesses, in which case they say maybe it'll be three to five years, right? I mean, like, that's not a hard choice. If you believe that the police believe that they've got your DNA at a double murder scene, I mean, it's, it's an agonizing choice to confess, but it's not a real choice, right? Can, can you speak a little bit to that psychology? Because it's so hard for people to understand in some way to help people understand how people can be manipulated in that way, for example, to say we have your DNA on the scene when someone 100% knows that they weren't at the scene, because that's what I get all the time. It's like, well, if they know they weren't, there's no way they would admit to it because they know they're lying. Well, but, but but they do. And how does that happen? So in some cases, they don't know that they're lying. I can talk about a different example of that. But, you know, in Robert's case, of course, he knew <laughs> that he had never been to Nola Charles's house. Of course, he knew he'd never touched any murder weapon, you know, to his knowledge associated right. with her. But what happens to people in that space, it's, you know, A, you start thinking to yourself, my God, could maybe maybe the killer took something from my house and used it to kill her. I don't know. Like, is that possible? So you start sort of guessing because you don't know, of course, that the police are allowed to lie. No one knows that. So you start imagining how could this possibly be because you think they have no reason to lie. Um, So that can happen. Or you can say to yourself, well, I know I wasn't at Nola Charles's house. I know. I never touched anything involved with her murder, but what I think doesn't count, what the police right. think counts, right? And what the prosecutors think counts when we're talking about criminal charges being brought against you. And if you were told for hours 
and hours and hours that there is rock-solid evidence against you, that I have three witnesses in the room next door who picked you out of a lineup, that I have your DNA evidence screaming your name as the perpetrator, and you are only making it worse for yourself by sticking to this lie, right? If they say that to you for hours, at a certain point, you're going to say, you know what? This is completely fucked up. But they really believe I did this, and others are going to believe it too. Because apparently there's all this evidence against me. So what can I do and, to and make people, this better? I think people people don't think don't realize how the mental exhaustion that comes in for six, seven hours of interrogation and how bad you get beat down and how bad you just want to get the hell out of there. And when you start, yeah, and you start to believe that it doesn't matter, like you said, it doesn't matter what I think. They're going to like this is what the, they're saying they have this. So it doesn't matter if I if I stick to it. And then it's Amanda, I, I interviewed Amanda Knox a, a few weeks ago, and she was she explained that process to me. She's like, it's like the ultimate form of gaslighting. Yes, it's like you literally start to think that you're crazy. Yes, like when you're when they're telling you, listen, you're wrong. Right. Um. J- Jason Baldwin uh, told me, he's, he's, you know, when 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 he was beat, now he, you know he he was able to get through it. He stuck to his guns and in his interrogations, but he said they kept asking me for the truth. And I kept giving him the truth, and they refused to accept my truth. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, it, it's so fucked up to be the person that, like, I'm telling you the truth, and for them to keep telling me that my truth is not the truth over and over and over again. It is a complete mind game. I mean, it is, it is turning the world on its head. That is what mm-hmm. interrogation is all about, right? Is making the truth a lie, and the lie the truth, and just tell us a story, and we're not going to accept it, and we're going to say whatever we need to say to get you into a place where you think that you need to say these things. It is completely disorienting. Another great example of, of lies during interrogation, which is different than what we're talking about, is the case of Marty Tankleff in New York, right? Marty, uh, this is a case um, from over, I think over 20 years ago now. Um, Marty was a high school senior from a well-to-do family that lived on Long Island, you know, a very intelligent guy, intelligent family, business businessman. His dad was a a local businessman, you know, very successful. Um, And Marty woke up on his first day of senior year of high school to find both of his parents had been brutally beaten in in two different rooms of the home. Um, He calls 911, he calls the police. The police take him in for questioning, right, as his parents are being brought to the hospital. Um, His mom was dead at the scene, but his dad was unconscious, but still clinging to life at the time that Marty found him. And here's Marty, a high school senior, who's just discovered his parents like this in their home. And they bring him in for questioning. And during his interrogation, they tell him, you know, he knows his dad is at the hospital clinging to life. They tell him, your dad came out of the coma, Marty, long enough to tell us that you're the one who did this. Which is a complete lie. But Marty had no way of knowing that that was a lie. And, uh-huh. you know, he came to think because of that lie, my God, my father would never say that if, if it weren't true. Mm-hmm. So maybe I did this and I don't remember doing it for some reason, right? Maybe I blacked it out. And of course, the police encouraged him to think that, you know, maybe you did this and, and didn't black it out. Your father wouldn't lie to you, Marty. You know, come on. Right. And he ended up confessing to the murder of his own parents. His father eventually passed away. So the, the double murder of both of his parents, which is one of the most just wrenching lies uh, you can think of. But the, but that's not an uncommon tactic either for them to, the, the, the whole blacked out didn't remember theme 
is you see a lot a lot of the wrongful convictions like that where it's like the only way this could have happened is if I was blacked out, drunk, sleepwalking, whatever, don't remember it. And then police are let's go with that theme. Yeah. So, okay, so what happened and you just don't remember. Right, exactly. That's in, in those cases, and th- those are actually the rarest form of false confessions or one of the rarer forms of false confessions that they're called internalized false confessions, where you internalize the police officer's insistence that you're guilty and you start to actually think to yourself, God, maybe did I, did I have like too much to drink and I blacked out and I did this and I don't remember? You know, did I just block this out of my memory because it's like selective amnesia because it was so horrible and I, could, I you know, just blocked it out because I don't want to relive it. Um, and of course, people who do have drinking or drug problems um, are more susceptible to those kinds of interrogation techniques, right? Because they probably have blacked out before and, you know, and, and think they may have done it again. Um, but yeah, we see those, those techniques. And then there are the dream interrogations, which are other interesting ones, right? Like Tommy Ward, the case of Tommy yeah. Ward in Ada, Oklahoma, which was the subject of the Netflix series, The Innocent Man. My organization, the Center on Wrongful Convictions, Greg Swigert, represents Tommy. And Tommy confessed to uh, the murder of a woman in Ada, Oklahoma, because he came to the police when they, when they questioned him. He said, you know, this case was so disturbing. I read about it in the news. Everybody in the small town knew what happened to her. He's like, I've, I've been having nightmares about it because it's so disturbing. And they're like, okay, Tommy. And he recounts, you know, this nightmare of this, you know, scenario of, of her abduction. And they turn his dream into a real confession. You know, it's, it, that's not a dream, Tommy. You lived that. You lived that. And he's still in prison today after spending, I think, about, th- he's been in for 35 years based on this dream confession. John Grisham actually wrote a book about it, right? Also called The Innocent Man. John Grisham's only nonfiction book, because in this case, he thought the truth was stranger than fiction. Right. And John Grisham actually appeared in that documentary, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He's I been a huge, it, yeah. huge supporter of Tommy. We're so grateful for, for John's support there. He's actually really active in the wrongful conviction space across the country, um, including in Virginia, which is where Robert Davis's case happened. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of people. These, these stories grab folks, right, from all different walks of life. Well, it, it's fascinating. Like, to, to me, it's, it's so, that, and that's why I've really directed so much of my efforts in that direction too is because it's just fascinating it's fascinating to me that you can just mind fuck somebody that bad to get them yeah. to say they did something that's going to send them to prison for the rest of their life that they didn't do and know that they didn't do it and all they're doing is telling a story i mean this is what's so interesting to me too if you take sort of a step back right and think about this phenomenon broadly when you confess all you're doing is telling a story about yourself it's all you're doing right Right? Mm-hmm. And so the task of exoneration becomes flipping that story on its head, right? Just pushing back against the narrative and, and changing it into the real true narrative, which hopefully there's evidence right, that supports it, whether it's DNA or other evidence. But it, it sort of is mind-blowing to think, to t- take a step back and think, they're being convicted because they told a story about themselves. Right. And there's no checks. I'm going to skip past, I'm going to come back to this, but the fact that there's no checks or balances afterwards in the, in the United States. Very few, right? Yeah. Is it, I think it's in the UK where like if somebody confesses, then it has to go through like this checklist before it can be used as evidence that it matches. I think it's the UK. It's one of the European countries that you have to like, it has to be supported by evidence and certain procedures have to be followed before it can be used. And we don't have that in the United States. The protections here are so spotty, so unevenly applied, and frankly, just so confusing. Many judges have written opinions that's bas- that are basically like, the you know the law when it comes to confessions i don't know how to apply it 
right? I mean, right. you actually read opinions like that. So in Robert Davis, just to, to close the loop on that, he's told all these things, right? You're going to get the death penalty unless you confess, in which case he'll get three to five years. He ends up confessing. He says on tape, what do I need to say I did to get out of this? Right? They feed him the whole story, right? That he was there with Rocky and Jessica and helped them. He repeats it back. And then it's like six in the morning and he looks up after having confessed. And he says, do you think by me telling you all this, it's going to get me home? And they're like, no, Robert, you're under arrest. You know, you'll see a judge on Monday. And he said, then why am I lying to you about all this just so I can go home? Right. And he said, Robert, you're not lying. He says, yes, I am. I am lying full front to your face. I am lying, right? Which just pisses them off. <laughs> Robert, you know, it's, it's horrible. Robert is put in cuffs. He's walked out of the room, charged based on this confession, right? The judge does not throw it out because the law is so unclear that he didn't think there was a clear reason to throw it out, even though Robert was threatened essentially with death unless he confessed. And after the confession was admitted into evidence, Robert, who was represented by one of the finest lawyers in Virginia and frankly in the country, a wonderful man named Steve Rosenfield, Robert agreed to enter an Alfred plea, right? Which is a, t a type of guilty plea in which you say, I'm innocent, but I recognize that the state has evidence against me, so I will plead guilty. Mm -hmm. Robert entered an Alfred plea in exchange for a sentence of about 25 years, served 13 of those years before a large team of us were able to convince the governor of the state to pardon Robert. Um, Terry McAuliffe was the one who finally pardoned Robert Davis on the basis of actual innocence, and he was freed from prison. But, but, but again, again, such a sad state of affairs that it's, he's so caught so deep in the system that the only way to get him out is to get outside of the system. Oh, right? exactly. You have to go to the governor. Exactly. Like you, you can't go through the appeals courts. You can't go. It's just not working. And you have to go outside of the of the criminal justice system to the governor in order to get. Which, of course, is a crapshoot, right? right? It's highly political. You know, I mean, in that case, thank God, Governor McAuliffe, then Governor McAuliffe was brave enough to to do that. But there are plenty of governors who don't have that courage in, in cases that involve especially murder. And unfortunately, Brendan Dassey is is looking at a governor like that right now, um, Tony Evers in Wisconsin. You know, when we appealed Brendan's case uh, a few years ago, um, which was in season two of Making a Murderer, we won two victories, first in the district court and then in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, um, both of which looked at this <laughs> confession and the tape and listened to it all and said, yeah, this thing is false. This thing is coerced. I mean, you know, and, and this... this person, Brendan, young man then, poses no danger to society. I'm ordering his immediate release, you know, absolutely saw it right. And then we were, again, as I said, poised within about 12 hours of getting him out. And then the state pulled this very rare legal maneuver, asking the, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals to throw out our appeals victory and redo the appeal in front of a larger group of judges, not just the normal three that you get, but that they wanted to do it in front of a group of seven judges. This kind of request is very rare. It's granted in one out of every 680 cases. And it was granted in Brendan's case. So we re-argued the appeal and lost by a single vote, four to three. And the rationale, part of the rationale in that opinion, which you can look up online and read, is, look, the law is so unclear when it comes to confessions that we can't clearly say that what was done here was illegal. Right? I mean, we'll talk about a classic example of the court system failing 
a human being, Brendan, failing justice, failing common sense, you know, maddening. And we, t- we took that, that opinion uh, to Governor Evers. The opinion calls uh, Brendan's case a profound miscarriage of justice. Um, you know, it is, it is the kind of situation where a governor needs to step in. Somebody outside this, this system that is broken needs to step in and do the right thing. And so far, Governor Evers has not done the right thing. He has declined so far to pardon Brendan Dassey, which is a disappointment. You know, he used to be a, a, a teacher, an educator, Governor Evers, before he became the governor. He's, before this office, he was the head of the State Board of Education. So he has worked with special, special education students like Brendan, right? He knows kids and their vulnerabilities and their suggestibility. And he so far has turned away from Brendan, which is a real disappointment. It's so sad. And one of the reasons I just respect wrongful conviction attorneys like you so much is, like you said, like it's such a disappointment, but like your job is full of disappointments. The system is so broken that, I mean, it's so hard, even a case like that, that seems so obvious. I don't really have an opinion on Steve Avery. I have a very strong opinion on Brendan Dassey. I mean, it's very clear to me that that confession was false. He absolutely needed, like any, I think anybody looking at it objectively can see that. And still you're fighting. You know, it, it happened with, you know, these, these legal loopholes, like you mentioned, like Anand Syed, his convictions overturned on solid evidence. They appeal it to the next level. It's, it's upheld. He's good to go. Two years later, the higher court then overturns that ruling, not because, you know, it was based on the, the cell phone evidence. Not because the evidence was incorrect, not because they think that he's guilty and a mistake was made, but because it was a time-barred argument and it was too late for him to, even though the argument was a winning argument, it was too late for him to make that argument. And so they send it right back and he's right back where he started. I mean, these are the kind of technicalities, you know, you just like (laughs) grab your pillow and scream into it. I mean, it just... You have to do that every day. It's just so wrong. I mean... So to, to be fair, you know, that's the thing about these cases, right? The system is so not designed to admit error. Yeah, like there are a thousand obstacles. One of those is, is a time bar. I'm sorry you filed your papers a few months too late or two days too late. People have been executed for those kinds of reasons, right? Which mm-hmm. are, it's just immoral. It's just immoral, right? But the system has just a thousand obstacles in place, which is why when, when we or friends, you know, at the Innocence Project, other organizations, when, the, when we do get exonerations, when we are able to either secure somebody's release or better yet, prove them innocent, um, those, those moments mean everything. They can take sometimes two years, right? We've been involved in cases where it's like, oh my gosh, there's untested, perfectly probative DNA. We'll just test the DNA. And you know, those, are, those are the more straightforward cases. It takes a couple of years or so to get through that. But those cases are you know, the exception increasingly in terms of the amount of time that it takes. It can take five years. It can take 10 years. It can take 15 years. Right before COVID, um, I had a client released from prison here in Illinois, whose case I took the same year that I got involved in Brendan Dassey's case. So I'd been working on that one for 13 years. It's just a tragedy, but it's, you know, that feeling of watching somebody walk out of prison is, is pretty, it's pretty sustaining. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, by that time, your client's your friend, right? You've been working right, together right. in the foxhole for so long. It's, it's pretty magical stuff. It's got to make it worth it, to, at least to get those wins to keep you going through just getting just beat to death through the system day in and day out leading up to that. Well, and our clients too, you know, are, we are very much, when we take a case, right, 
you're in it with your clients. You know, you guys are mm-hmm. on the same team. So, you know, th- it's easy to feel sort of, you know, discouraged or frustrated when you're in, in my position, but think about it in their position, right? I get to go home every night. Right. I get to see my family. I get to tuck in my kids. I get to breathe the fresh air and feel the sunshine and all those things. And, and they don't. They don't. And if they can stay hopeful, I can stay hopeful, you know? Well, that's great. And you do amazing work with the Center for Wrongful Convictions as an attorney. And I love that you've taken that out on the podcast. And I think we're going to leave this here for now for more information on this. The podcast is called Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. Her name is Laura Nyrider. Check it out. Remember, go to the Wrongful Conviction feed and her episodes are inside of that feed. Laura, thank you so much for taking your time. We're both exhausted having just come off the tail end of CrimeCon. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me. It was my pleasure. Thanks a million, Bob. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.